podcast hosting for the Run With It podcast is provided by Transistor.fm. Welcome to Run With It, where we bring you business ideas from proven founders. Each episode, you'll hear a new business idea and the exact steps our guest would take to get started. We're your hosts, Chris Justin and Ethan Janney. And on today's episode, we have Angela Ferrante. Angela is the founder and CEO of Laudable, a startup making it easier and more affordable to create video content by doing it all remotely. Laudable is out to kill the boring B2B marketing archetype, <clears throat> PDF case study, and bring human stories to life through video. Angela was previously the founding CMO at SparkFund, a venture-backed energy technology company. That's super impressive, Ethan, and kind of terrifying. Be on our A-game here, but <laughs> our show is about new business ideas, and you've got one to improve management and leadership training. How did you come up with this idea? Yeah, so I almost went down this path of starting this business about a year ago. I did a bunch of exploration work and some customer discovery and even some prototyping. But the basic background and idea was that I joined this company, Spark Fund, as CMO with very little formal management training and, and frankly, very little management experience. And you're sort of thrust into this environment of being responsible for other humans and, and their job performance without knowing how to do that. Um, the classic new manager problem and all of the traditional resources for how to do that well felt super dated, right? It's like you can go to an offsite in a boring conference room with a mahogany table and sit around and do trust falls and talk about, you know, how to manage. That's one way that that certainly didn't resonate, and it was it was more expensive than we could we could afford. I would love to do some trust falls, by yeah, the way. I was I've, thinking the same thing. It's been too long since I've had a trust fall. <laughs> I haven't been at all in corporate the corporate world, except from like the outside perspective. You know, maybe uh, working with people who who are in it. But I, I listened listened to an audio book on the five dysfunctions of a team, and it's this book about how to make teams better and they have pure, poor communication and poor alignment and so on and so forth. But yeah, that's like the big thing that everybody, the woman who's running the whole program, they, they make this fictional story up and she wants to have an offsite and everybody's like offsite. Oh my God. And she's like, she's like, yeah, well, we're not going to go do trust falls or any of that BS, you know? And um, yeah, I don't know. I just got to think like offsites and trust falls. It sounds really fun to me. Maybe I just haven't been in the corporate world enough. <laughs> it's just so campy, bordering on hokey, or not even bordering, just full on hokey. And to do that with your colleagues is just like sort of cringy. Yeah, because then I would be the guy at the offsite who kind of just creeps up by himself and actually has a good time, you know, I'd probably just like make fun, make, make friends with like the staff at the, at the place and like hang out after hours drinking or something like that. And then I'd get fired. So yeah, it probably, <laughs> probably wouldn't work. Avoid that. There's gotta be a better way. Uh, in doing research for this episode, Angela, one of the things that provided some data behind the value of something like this, there's a research paper from 2016 in uh, out of Stanford that covers the productivity increase and actually the increased business success due to management training. There was this cohort that happened in um, Italian business, actually, where after World War II, 
Uh, some Italian businesses got management training from the U.S. and some didn't as part of the Marshall Plan. So it created this really interesting case study. And it, was, it wasn't the best businesses that got it. But the ones who did, after 15 years, their businesses were larger. They had more investment. Their contribution to GDP was larger. All of those things that, uh, that you would consider to be a successful business. It, it was something like a 50% increase from management training uh, just at that time. So I think it's important to frame that for the listener that this isn't something that's just like a nice to have and makes your employees feel good and valued. It's something that can make a, a big difference in the success of a, of a business. Yeah. Well, if you think about it just anecdotally, people leave managers, they don't leave companies. And I'm sure everybody has their horror stories of, of worst boss ever. They're like, I had to get out of there. Everything else could have been amazing. Um, and I think one of the, the stats was 75% of employees consider their direct manager to be the worst part of their job. That's really depressing. And, and so if you can even improve a manager's sort of performance slash likability, and likability is a tricky one, but, but certainly effectiveness by 10%, that makes a huge bump overall, productivity-wise, morale-wise, company-wide. All right. You sold us on, on this being a problem and the opportunity that's available by, by closing this gap. What do you think the value of this solution would be? One of the, the sort of sub problems is that there's a, a ton of incredible content out there. I would not suggest someone go out and try to recreate the wheel on writing a textbook or any ebook or any form of, of content around here's how to be an effective great manager. There's so much good research. Google Rework has an, an awesome project around this. Uh, and a lot of amazing content, videos, et cetera. But it's all over the place, right? It's not, the, the organization and structure around it is, is sort of tricky to find, even within something that is supposed to be organized like a LinkedIn Learning or, or formerly lynda.com. So I think one value would be just organizing and, and, and providing some structure and guidance to the incredible content that is out there around management training and eventually leadership development. And then the other thing I think is providing some accountability I remember talking to colleagues at Spark Fund who were incredibly passionate about improving themselves as managers and, and just as people. Yet, when you actually looked at what they did from a management development perspective on their own, it wasn't very much because it always got crowded out by other objectives they had to achieve at, 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 on their job or, or just day-to-day -day work and life, right? And so being able to have something that you know, in this form, if it's an app or whatever the format looks like that holds you accountable and is checking in with you regularly and, and sort of dosing out material and telling you, here's what to do in this next week. And then ask, checking in with you and asking if you did it. I think there's huge value in that because it's sort of that small actions compound factor that, that lets you actually spend a little bit of time each week or each day or whatever it is uh, to, to get better. Now you mentioned something like really in passing really quickly and I, it just intrigued me. So I don't know how much you know about it, but I'm just curious. You said, you said Google rework. Um, mm -hmm. And I looked that up right now and it looks like it's literally re like regarding right with a colon work. Yeah. And I have never heard of this. Do you, what do you know about it? What's going on there? Has this been helpful to you? Yeah, I, it's been a while since I've, I have really dug in, but they have, I think it's an ongoing project. I want to say it started about 10 years ago to investigate what, you know, management principles, how we work, effective meetings, all of these things. And they, 
they just continually check in with their own from their own employee base as, as sort of the sandbox to evaluate there's for example there's a framework around good management that i think it's like 10 point framework or something uh, that is that is continually updated based on what their own findings are and, and may in fact take outside perspective as well. I'm not sure. So there's a kind of a wealth of information and a ton of gems in there around how to manage. I mean, there are literal templates and frameworks for here's how to have a one-on-one -on -one. and it's all free and, and available on online. That's really cool. I have to put out a gripe here real quickly, Google um, yes. and their employment style. Okay, let's let's set aside the whole thing about all all the world's information is free except our all of our interior information is super proprietary if you work here. But this uh like I hear all these things about Google management and then I go ask somebody who works at Google about them and they're like, "What? What are you talking about?" Like I I I was always I always really loved this when I heard about I think it's like a 70 20 10 ratio. We want you to work 70% right. on your job and I think it was 20% on it, free time. Free time. There was a certain percentage you get to work on like a passion project and, and they're all about innovation. So they don't care. Yeah. And I have a friend who worked as developer at Google and I was like, yeah, what about that 70, 20, 10 thing? He's like, what are you talking about? I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> do you think it's a product of the company is just so large that the practices aren't consistent or like, what do you think's going I think on? They, yeah. I really don't know because I never worked at Google myself. I've, I've been to lunch there with friends a couple times, but like I think it's part of it is they started the company small and then they had their their ways of doing things, and then as it grew larger, they might change or adapt or you know they allow certain managers to do things their own way. And but some part of it makes me wonder, and it's a little bit more of the cynical perspective, if it's just PR, if it's just. Google had found early on, if they put out all these articles about their cool and alternative ways of working, that people would just start to, I mean, for God's sakes, there was a movie about working at Google. How did that ever happen? With like, do you remember that? Owen Wilson or something was in I a movie. I think I've seen that movie. Working yeah. with Google? It wasn't really that good, but. He's an intern. Yeah, yeah something intern. like that. It, it, but, but it was like, so part of me just wonders if they just like, they don't really care as much whether it's true, but they put stuff that sounds cool out there about what it's like to work at Google because then people will be intrigued and want to work there. So and to then, the listener out there who uh, works at Google, you can anonymously share your experience <laughs> to, to either confirm or disprove. You guys are going to get outreach from a, a Google HR person slash lawyer. Who's like... <laughs> so you're bringing this idea up. Rob Fitzpatrick brought something similar up. On Union Square Ventures, it's a venture capital fund. They have a request for a startup. It's titled Looking for Syllabus 2.0. And it's exactly like you're describing. There's a ton of information out there, but it's not well organized. It's not curated in a way that's easily digestible. It's not, hey, watch this YouTube video from three minutes and 27 seconds to uh, six minutes and 15 seconds, and then read this article. And then, you know, it's not sequenced and it's not curated in a, in a compelling way. So just hearing this idea come up over and over again from some really smart people who have you know, been entrepreneurs and, and are, uh, have funded entrepreneurs, uh, the listener out there, like that's, that should be a really right. clear signal that this is something worth working on. Also a tip and a tweak here when it comes to when it comes to content, I think it, at least to me, it used to feel like creating content was the value. You know, if, if I wasn't the expert and I didn't create the content, I might not have much value to offer. And now I'm noticing more and more there's this counterintuitive thing 
of just going and finding the content and organizing it for someone else and making sure it's in the right order and making sure they know that it's valuable too. Um, that especially, I think will only become more so, become more important as we get more and more information. It's so noisy, right? There's so many blog yeah. articles, so many yeah. YouTube videos, so many things out there. If you could be a person that knows how to curate it and put it in the right order, then it's just as valuable as being able to create the content in the first place. Oh, absolutely, right? It follows this arc of like, if there's a dearth of content, you can have a comparative advantage and, and really stand out by being the one to create that content. If it's amazing content or even just decent content or in the early days, you think about when people first come, started coming out with blogs and then there becomes an overabundance of the content and you're getting flooded with stuff left and right. And the same thing with our email inboxes, right? It was like create a newsletter and now it's more about pare that down and, and curate a newsletter. So I think the curation piece becomes really important. Um, and and in, within this concept, if you can then pair that with the actual action steps and, and uh, kind of accountability, I, I think there's a, a winning combination. You shared some numbers, both in terms of market size and in terms of the uh, cost that you think that you could charge for uh, this solution. Can you talk about that a little bit? The research that we did when we were talking to HR leaders about how much would they pay for something like this, we tended to hear between 9 and $49 per month per employee. To do the math on that, but but that seemed to be where people resonated. Right, which if you're looking for if you're if you're targeting companies that have you know ten or a hundred or a thousand employees, then it starts to really scale. You're hitting some pretty large numbers there. Yeah, exactly. It becomes a, a real enterprise. Now, do you point. think you would shoot for enterprise? Is that the goal of this? Am I am I shooting for a small business owner who only has ten to twenty employees, or are we just saying you know really our market is only above 100 or even only above 1,000 or 10,000 employees? Yeah, so I think it depends on the person's background and what types of companies they, they're in HR and they've worked at large companies, they may have a bit more credibility in that particular market. One thing that I did think was interesting and, and sort of presents a challenge to this, not insurmountable, but a challenge to, to getting this business started is that traditionally the startup advice is, is start doing it immediately, ship your product when you're embarrassed, just get in market which is, is super solid advice and, and I think holds regardless. But when we're talking about a product that is education-based and that it also is involves something as sort of sacred as management philosophy and, and, and approach, you've got to be a little bit careful because if you just go in, you know, gunslinging willy-nilly with like, here's my management training program and it's crap, I, you're going to sort of shoot yourself in the foot. So I think there has to be a little bit of a balance of how, how robust does the program have to be before you can start addressing enterprise customers. So I'd probably start mid-market. I'm jumping around a little bit here, but as you were describing that, I just thought of uh, the fact that there's no Netflix for, for management training, right? What if you had uh, David Allen's Getting Things Done coaching program and you had access to that and you had uh, Orin Class sales or you had... I'm trying to look at my bookshelf here to see Cal Newport's uh, deep work philosophy, uh, things like that, that you could have unlimited access to and you pay 30 bucks a month or 50 bucks a month or whatever. Uh, that seems like that could be compelling. And I know you framed it as Duolingo yeah. uh, for management training, which also I think makes a lot of sense. 
what what you just said, I think is actually really interesting. And there's this growing space around infotainment, right? How do you make education or informational content actually educational? And why couldn't, you know, so many people learn what an office, you know, I learned what, not doctors are cringing, rolling over at this, but like I learned what an, a, a, a medical environment, workplace environment looks like from Grey's Anatomy. So why couldn't there be something that actually sets positive standards and sets in place positive behaviors that's the office but instead of a parody of a, a ridiculous workplace something that shows a good management behavior i don't know maybe a little off the wall but but i think it's really interesting sounds like an offsite with trust falls to me going a little bit deeper into getting started with this idea right so when you said mid-market i'm thinking a hundred, a hundred employees level. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, and maybe it's even on the SMB side. Technically, to to start out, you start with a business that has fifty employees and has a cl- a small class of new managers. I would also think about what's the specific program. Who are you going to address in terms of not only the company but the actual manager in training? Um, one thing that we heard a lot was our new managers need a program. We need like a quick boot camp, a way to to then get them up and running with how to be a manager 101 when we first promote them from, from individual contributors. So something like that could be a great way to start, right? Say we're going to build out a new manager program. It only lasts three months or whatever it is, and we're going to target companies that are 50 employees or 100 employees, something in that realm. So when I was at Spark Fund, the CEO and I used to get lost in these very abstract conversations where we tried to create a mental model for all the things we were going to do, and we'd get lost in talking about things up here, and all of a sudden it loses any sense of tactical reality, like what you're going to actually do. It's sort of the principle in writing shitty first drafts, right? It's like get something out when there are so many variables that are up in the air. It feels really hard to optimize for all of them, whereas if you just have a couple in place, then you can start putting things in in place. Absolutely. So what would be the shitty first draft of uh, action steps for this idea? version one or version point one would be some type of short-term program, right? Or actually, let's pare it back even more. One activity, right? One week of here's your learning existing content. Here's the activity to put into practice. And, and then giving that to a manager who has new direct reports and then getting them to report back. You don't even have to have any digital element. It can be, here's a link to a Brene Brown podcast listen to it, fill out this, these two lines, and then try XYZ in your next direct report meeting. Yeah, the other thing that you're bringing to mind here in, in using that as an approach, first of all, this has come up on other episodes before, the idea that if you already have an audience, sometimes it's easier to create a product, right, to fill that audience. So number one, for, for the listener that is already doing some sort of management training or consulting, if you're already writing blog posts or you need to put out content, a blog post giving an exercise to people and some action steps they can take mm-hmm. in a way to get back to you, it serves as a way of promoting yourself. It serves as a way of building your audience, but it also can be a piece of the puzzle when you start to put together this product, right? That's a great idea. Even way better than what I said. I love that, right? You start to, I, I hate to suggest somebody start a newsletter, but right, have like free, here's your exercises weekly to give and, and share them out for free, just start creating micro versions of, of activities for new managers. It's awesome. 
to bring up news later, I'm not sure why you said hate hate to bring up the idea of newsletters. We've been hearing a lot about newsletters as a sort of intriguing way. It's a, it's a way hot that, trend. Man. It's a hot trend. Yeah. That people are making. yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which I'm curious why you why you hate it. I think that's why you're getting, what you're getting to, Ethan. Huh? I don't hate them. I think I just am aware of how much you know. It goes back to the content problem. I'm aware of how many newsletters there are and how everyone is like batting down things coming into their inbox. Um, that doesn't mean there's not a place for, for quality content and that people don't want it. It just is, even the immediate reaction is, oh boy, another newsletter. Is there a way to, just to beat that down more, even more a little bit, like, is there a way to start with a paid newsletter, for example, where you create content that's good enough or you create a sort of a, a system whereby you have paid subscribers and you're giving them assignments each week and you're checking in with everybody or something like that. For sure. Yeah. I mean, and I was thinking about it as a free newsletter for V.01, but why not, right? Start to charge just a little bit, especially when, you know, we, as we know, we value things we pay for, even if it's like a dollar, so make it a dollar a week, you know, upscale your management skills. And again, I want to stress that, as you said, that you don't have to create the content yourself. There's this wealth of information out there. The, the value is in curating and presenting and sequencing it. Yeah. And I guess I would maybe consult a family lawyer or something around, can you charge for a newsletter that's sending out someone else's content? I'm sure there's a way around that as there is with everything, but we'd maybe be a little cautious of that. Before we get even deeper into the episode here, I don't want to miss the opportunity. We're talking about we're talking about management. You you know you brought this idea. You've you started companies. You've worked within larger organizations. Can you name like like a lesson that you learned in management or, or something that like you were like oh duh? And once you figured it out, you found it was really useful. Any management tips? Oh, it's so tricky because it's so counterintuitive to what you learn as an independent or an individual contributor, right? Uh, I think one thing that I made a lot of mistakes on is, is sort of oscillating between under managing and micromanaging. You expect that someone should just be able to know how to do the thing that you, we need done as a company and, and run off and do with it. And, and you don't want to sort of, you almost feel intrusive if you're like, so how are you thinking about getting started? This is the at least initial reaction. When in reality, I think what works really well is you have a particular project, you you dive in with them and sort of get your hands dirty and setting a plan of action. And then you step back and let them run with it um, and check in periodically, right? But, but sometimes there's this fear of like, well, I don't want to micromanage that leads to people being totally hands off and then waiting till there's a final deliverable due and being like, well, this isn't what I wanted at all, diving and doing it themselves. And then you're just really uh, demotivating and, and, and sort of, it becomes really terrible for morale and, and, and employee spirit. So I think, I think that's the thing is finding the right way to be engaged without micromanaging. Now, on top of that, you said that 75% of people, or what, they attribute 75% of the lameness of their work to their boss or something like that. Um, any, any things that you can anonymously share about terrible supervisors or bosses? So I'll tell you a side story. I had a, a job at one point in my career that I had a manager who was an engineer. And knowing if you know me, that is probably not the best fit for my personality. Someone who looks like very by the book and very all analysis based. Um, needless to say, it wasn't the best, best direct report relationship. Um, but he actually said, 
I, I had a, a bit of a, of a dissolution when they found out about a, a side hustle I had at the time. And he actually said to me, you know, it'd be one thing if you were waitressing, but, um, you make plenty of money for a young woman and I don't know why you feel the need to go out and, and do this. So that was a like, what not to do management. Have you guys had any horror stories? I have to bring the one up that is like similar related. And it wasn't, it wasn't, it didn't happen to me, but uh, a coworker came to me. I'm very upset. She had just been on maternity leave and she came back and the supervisor said, and I don't know what he was thinking. He's, he was kind of foreign. So maybe he just didn't, doesn't understand English. He got a lot of leeway, I think for, for being out of the culture. He said, I, I brought you on this project. I expected productivity, not reproductivity. And, and it was just like, I don't even know why oh she didn't God. report him for that. But um, yeah, that was horrible to me. I mean, when, how long ago was that? That was probably five years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And people, you know, I was actually surprised that people tolerated that kind of thing. Because, I mean, I'm, I was probably the per person that was the most upset about that after she was initially upset. I think she was willing to tolerate it after the fact. And I was thinking, okay, come on. Wow. Yeah. yeah. I mean, not to go yeah. too far off of this tangent, but, uh, let's I know vent. Someone, let's vent, yeah, I know, guys. I, I got I got <laughs> one more along that, along that story. It's not mine, but I, I know someone right now who is, uh, would want to get pregnant, but is not because she knows that she would, she was told point blank that it would, hinder her job prospects at this company oh, wow so yeah that happens i mean that was five years ago that's happening today that's uh that's a shame i'm guessing she was told that by a male no actually by a female yeah her supervisor is female so she the supervisor was probably doing that in a let me clue you into the realities of this workplace type of thing. i don't know i don't know what the motivation is behind her i've never met the supervisor i um yeah, it sounded like it was just a money first type of thing, I'm guessing. It's not even like it's a super small business, but that's just, uh, yeah. All right. I want to, now we're just on this topic. I got to throw this in there and I want your opinion, Angela, because I think, I don't know. I just want your opinion. And it's a weird question for me to ask, but I want to ask it. Do you yeah. think that within the workplace that, the, that a company would be more productive if, if, if during a woman's cycle, if she got to take time off during the difficult parts, but maybe was expected to work a little bit more during the parts that weren't as difficult, do you think that would increase workplace productivity? Or do you think just keeping the same hours all the way throughout the month is, is, oh, the, is just as productive? You were a courageous man, Ethan. I don't know where this is coming from. I told you at the top of the hour, I said, we talked about how Angela kills kills uh, <laughs> the B2B playbook. My murderous side. So there's a couple. First of all, I think I saw a chain on LinkedIn. I think there was some company that announced they were giving, I don't know what they called it, some sort of terribly cutesy name to time off like menstrual time off or something absurd. Mm -hmm. And the, the comments were fire, first of all, no I'm surprise. Sure. But really interesting and really polarizing. Some people were jumping in saying, wonderful, this is a great example of people paying attention to uh, gender differences in the workplace and being respectful. And then other people like, this is so insulting and laughable. It's like, 
you know, men making the worst ever Midol commercial and then being like, we're here for you. So I, personally, it rubs me the wrong way. It does not, it does not die with me. Um, it feels condescending and also micromanaging of like something that has nothing to do with the boss's sort of say. And so I think there are two questions. One is, is it appropriate? And, and, and two is, does it increase productivity? I can't speak to the productivity question. No, I, I don't. That's why I, I asked it. That's why I asked it in positive. those terms. Not like, do you think it's right or wrong? But do you think it actually might imp- increase productivity? Because that's kind of ostensibly no. the idea is that you wouldn't ask people to work extra hard when they're not feeling at their best or something like that. No, I don't think so. And where do you stop, right? It's like, let me let me look at your level of like indigestion this week and let me give you some time off for that, right? It's like, okay, come on. I think that the zooming out, I think, and this actually does line up with, with the, the business idea that, that we're chatting about. I think my philosophy is, and I think where most companies are headed, we're all adults. Let's treat us all like adults who know how to manage our own energy best in the workplace and we know how you know when we need to take it a little easier if we need to take a a nap in the middle of the afternoon that's fine because we're working hard and we ultimately have a strong work ethic so it's trust at the foundation and not trying to micromanage what that that sort of work flow no pun intended looks like i really like that actually because i think that that would make space for both of those those um populations with that that responded that post that we were talking about right if you just said hey if you feel like you're not going to be able to be productive at any point, right? But you need yeah. the rest and it's going to help you when you can be productive, you, you know, you get to decide, right? I'm not going to tell you when it is, but you can decide. And then that way, some people could make that decision right. or they could decide to power through or work through. And I right. like that. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's not putting it in, in the hands of the company to determine what reasons for taking it easy or, or stepping back are, um, what are valid, right? It's, it's, it's just trusting people as adults and, and as employees and team members to make that call on their own. Yeah. This, I think an essential crux of why this idea you're bringing to the table is valuable is that we're evolving very slowly mm-hmm. out of a industrial type of workplace where 100%. you were supposed to, you were supposed to decree what people did. Listen, if you don't do it yeah. this way, then the factory line's not going to move forward. We need to teach you exactly factory. how to do it. And nowadays it's really more about like, sort of, like you said, you give them as much guidance as they need. It's almost like, you know, like letting that glider plane off the edge of the cliff and then they can fly wherever they like and figure out exactly how they want to do it. You just have to give them a little bit of liftoff. Completely. I mean, I think it's at the nexus of of sort of a bunch of societal shifts in general, but, but yeah, I I think that's completely accurate and and a a great way to analyze it. I want to bring back one more reference or bring in one more reference related to this idea. Uh, Patrick Collison, CEO of Stripe and Tyler Cowan, uh, he is at the Mercatus Center in George Mason. He runs a really popular podcast called uh, Conversations with Tyler. They wrote a joint article in The Atlantic called We Need a New Science of Progress. And the reason that I think about this is they convincingly argue that we are stagnating as a society. We're working just as hard. Our output and well, our input has increased tremendously. Uh, things are more expensive. The amount of time that we're spending on on different activities is, is longer, but our productivity gains have not risen alongside with that. So what's missing there? And 
I think at the, at the top of the hour, we talked about how I think that actually this management coaching and, and the idea that you're bringing up could address some of it. It's not going to be so bold as to say it's going to take care of all of it, but uh, coming up with ideas to to assess, okay, when were, when were periods where we were extremely productive, made huge advances as a society, and what were we doing during those times, and what's different between then and now, and can we come up with some innovative ideas to help us get to the next level, like what you've shared with us? Yeah, I have to tell you, my brain and gut immediately goes to AI. It's like that I can't get it, have I can't find a way around thinking that the next sort of wave of that massive leap in productivity for us all and, and us each individually and, and collectively gaining points of leverage is just AI. So I think that's a good point to uh, to put a pin on the episode. Just you know, forget, forget all this. Just go go buy some robots. <laughs> Hire a, a robot. robot. People don't matter. <laughs> Angela, thank you very much for the conversation. Really enjoyed it. Where can people go to learn more about what you're doing? Yeah, you can find me on LinkedIn, uh, my personal page under Angela Ferrante. Also, we have a, a website, getlaudable.com, or the Laudable LinkedIn page. Great. And to the listener out there, take some action on this idea, even as we had talked about in the middle of the episode, even if you don't know exactly how it would all work out, just you know, get in motion and then you can course correct from there. You may end up with something, uh, something better, something different. So, And if you uh, say something extremely stupid to someone who that you're managing, make sure you apologize profusely when necessary. <laughs> <laughs> don't do it in writing. Don't yeah. do it in writing. <laughs> Well, thank you for tuning in, listener, and we will see you next week. The podcast hosting for the Run With It podcast is provided by Transistor.fm. They host our MP3 files, generate our RSS feed, provide us with analytics, and help us distribute the show to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. If you want to start your own podcast or you want to switch to Transistor, go to transistor.fm slash run, that's R-U-N, and get 15% off your first year.